Well, hello and welcome to the third of our CSF podcast focusing specifically on psoriatic arthritis. We'll be bringing you new episodes on a bi-monthly basis as well as our AXPA podcasts. We'll also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to keep you up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of psoriatic arthritis. And you know where to find them, cytokinesignaling.com. Now, I'm Professor Ian McInnes from the University of Glasgow in Scotland, and today I'm joined by Professor Philip Mees of the University of Washington School of Medicine, as well as Dr. Frank Behrens at the Goethe University and Dr. Laura Coates of the Oxford Psoriatic Arthritis Centre. What an amazing group of colleagues. I don't know about you, but I'm going to learn a very great deal in the next few minutes. So let us enjoy learning together. And who better to kick off this educational feast than Philip? Over to you, sir. Thanks so much, Ian. Uh, the papers we'll be covering in today's uh, discussion relate to several novel therapies uh, for psoriatic arthritis. The first paper relates uh, to secukinumab, an IL-17A inhibitor, and specifically on its effect on Achilles tendon enthesitis. As we know in PSA, enthesitis is a significant issue affecting many patients. Uh, so anywhere where a ligament or tendon inserts into bone can be painful. Uh, and it has a subtly different biology uh, than that of synovitis or skin disease. So we're especially curious about uh, the impact of our drugs on, on this. And, and traditionally, we've looked mainly with clinical uh, aspects. So pressing on the area. And here, uh, Frank Barron is going to be giving us some much more detailed information uh, derived from MRI, uh, uh, as well as looking at its comparison to uh, the uh, Leeds and Thesitis Index. Uh, the uh, second of today's papers is one I'll be discussing, which has to do uh, with the patient-reported outcomes and quality of life uh, uh, changes that occur with an IL-23 P19 uh, inhibitor of psoriatic arthritis, uh, the drug Rizinkizumab, uh, which has been recently approved for treatment of psoriatic arthritis. Uh, and then finally, uh, uh, Laura Coates uh, will be speaking uh, to the long-term safety and efficacy of a drug that we're very interested in, IL an IL-17A and F inhibitor, bimikizumab. So, uh, Frank, over to you. Yeah, Philip, thank you very much for this introduction. And uh, yeah, the first uh, paper is titled Efficacy and Safety of Secukinumab in Patients with Spondyloarthritis and Enthesitis at the Achilles Tendon Results from a Phase 3B trial. So I'm a little bit biased on this manuscript because I'm part of the European group who decided to try to better understand um, the effect of IL-17 inhibition with secukinumab on enthesitis. So um, there's a lot of things about the study design already put in the title. So first of all, it's not only psoriatic arthritis. So we looked at this study for, psoriat for psoriatic arthritis or axial SPA patients with Achilles enthesitis. So believing I don't know whether it's true or not, that maybe the pathophysiological concept on the Achilles enthesitis uh, is comparable within these spondyloarthritis groups. Could be, maybe it's not, but for recruitment reason and all these things to be more generalized, we designed it like it is. Um, and of course, enthesitis, and, and Philip already introduced it, is a, is a hallmark feature in SPA. And uh, 
I think in some cases, it's a very early sign of musculoskeletal inflammation. For example, in psoriasis patient, and up to 35% of patients might be affected by heel enteritis and Achilles enteritis because mechanical stress might also be an important trigger to induce it um, um, as an important feature for first signs of musculoskeletal inflammation. So the problem was, again, addressed by Philip, but it's hard to find objective yeah, measures to see whether it's enteriopathy or it is really enteritis. And, and our idea was we focusing on Achilles tendon, we do an MRI uh, to confirm whether it's inflamed or not. We using, uh, let's say, a, a handbook to under, analyze these uh, imagings in a, in a standardized way. And we used later on the pictures to make a centralized reading. A reading. It was not required by inclusion, but later on we use the imaging to make a centralizing. So inclusion criteria, you must have Achilles enteritis based on clinic judgment. It has to be confirmed by MRI. Uh, and then to see whether we can resolve these enteritis at the Achilles as one subdomain within Leeds enteritis index, which is the dominant Achilles tendon involved in this individual patient and to see whether it is better resolved by secukinumab compared to placebo, and what can we learn from changes in imaging. So um, we uh, have results demonstrated at week 24, and we see a higher, but yet statistically non-significant proportion of patients in secukinumab compared to placebo reported resolution of Achilles tendon enteritis at the affected foot. I will come back later on on the challenges of the design. Uh, and what we can learn from the design and also what we can learn about the value of the product. So 42.2% had a resolvement in secukinumab treated group and 31 in the placebo treated group. So, but it wasn't significant. Though we had also, uh, based on the Leeds enteritis index, uh, a higher resolution uh, with secukinumab compared to placebo, it's 33.3 compared to 23.5. Um, interestingly, specifically heel pain was really very different. The resolvement of heel pain based on patient reported pain was um, a, a reduction of heel pain by minus 2.8 compared to minus 1.9 uh, um, in, in secukinumab uh, respectively to placebo. So uh, we also see a greater improvement of heel enteriopathy. All activity, all these are standardized questionnaires and measures um, in, in, in secukinumab compared to placebo. And interestingly, if you look to the MRI, um, on the central reading, we saw only half of the patient in central reading, uh, where the central readers has already demonstrated that we see a bone marrow edema at the incisional and the insertion side of the heel. And they used the Hamris uh, scoring system, um, and we had only 76% having incisional inflammation, despite the fact that we had at the beginning of the trial up to 35% of screening failures based on negative MRI at local reading. So means we have a very, let's say, stringent selection process, but despite the fact that we made it in that way, we had still uh, only half of the patients were in central reading a bone marrow edema at the insertion of the intestinal were confirmed. Right, so, interrupt. Yeah. Can, can you just remind me on behalf of those of us who are so far away from the literature. What is Hemris? Some of our colleagues in, in clinical it's, practice. It's an, have a, it's a, yeah, you're right. It's an OMARAC process to make a, let's say, consensus on how you can read 
uh, MRI imaging. Yeah, you're right. Thanks for this important question. No, so, I, I it, serve as the lowest common denominator of knowledge in many discussions, Frank. There is no exception. Thank you. Back to the story. Yeah. It's a great story. Thank and, you. And, and, and to be honest, this scoring system was developed in parallel uh, when we designed the studies. Therefore, we used, let's say, a handbook where Xenophon Baraliakos and others who are really familiar with the MRIs defined what we want to see. And we had also the possibility that a rheumatologist, based on what we asked them to look for, can overrule his local radiologist. Because we saw in the past that radiologists had sometimes a different view, only looking for bursitis instead of bone marrow But all these things um, were tried to, to, to include it. So um, at the end, we, we, we can conclude that a substantial proportion of patients showed no signs in op let's say, I don't know whether it's objective measure, but at least in MRI scanning, based on how we rate MRI nowadays, um, but still also uh, the response to, uh, to secrokinumab what didn't depend on what you see in MRI. So for me, uh, there's no doubt that secrokinumab worked at all because in heel, and in heel pain, in heel astropathy, in lights overall, huge differences between secrokinumab and placebo. Uh, of, it wasn't significant based on the zero or one, let's say, very hard sensitivity to, to change uh, scoring at one Achilles tendon. Means there was no graduation of response. It was only yes or no, which is hard to 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 make as an endpoint. That's what I learned by study design. Uh, and I don't know what's the value of MRI at enthesitis. And now it's open to discussion uh, uh, to see uh, what does it mean for us in the future. Yeah, Frank. That thanks. That's a fantastic discussion of the of the paper, and we're we're delighted actually of that additional insight that that you have as an author. So so thanks for that. I don't know, Phil, Philip. Do you want to kick off? What are your thoughts here, sir? Well, one of the things that I'm uh, really interested in is trying to have more objective ways of measuring enthesitis than our simple way of just pressing on it and looking at the patient's face and seeing if they grimace or uh, asking if they have pain. Because as Frank alluded to, it's hard to distinguish between having true enthesitis and having what we would might call enthesalgia, especially in patients who have concomitant fibromyalgia. But one of the other issues that has arisen is that we've got a couple of new entrants coming along to the IL-17 inhibitor class two of which one they have odd names, one called Izocabep and the other called Sonolicumab, which are uh, ILS, one is IL-17A uh, binding, the other is IL-17A and F binding, but they both also bind to albumin. And both uh, uh, drugs, at least the people that are developing them, are interested in whether or not they might have better tissue penetrance, partly because of the albumin binding and their their nanobody characteristics and so forth. And so I was wondering, uh, and Frank, when you presented the Izocabep data at ULAR, I actually got up to the microphone, but I don't, the moderators didn't see me there in the, uh, at the <laughs> microphone. But I was going to ask you what you thought about, since we can't just go in willy nilly and biopsy these enthesial insertion sites, what you thought of MRI versus ultrasound in trying to tease out this question of whether or not a drug might have better tissue penetrance. It's a tough, tough issue uh, to try to uh, accomplish uh, in clinical studies. Uh, do you, uh, but it, it was it, there was some 
sort of enticing information that you presented on Izocobep, where there was a, a dose-dependent increase of improvement in enthesitis with that particular drug. Do you have any comments about that? Yeah, to your first question, I'm uh, about objective detection of enthesitis. To be honest, based on Achilles, I'm definitely disappointed about MRI. I, I don't know what's the reason for it, because um, it, I, I participated at the study site as well, for sure. And, and at the beginning, I, I sent two of my patients to the MRI and, and two of them came back and they had no enthesitis. And I said, come on, so I'm the PI of the study. Come on, if I press on the Achilles uh, tendon, it must be. Come on, guys, MRI must be wrong, to be honest. It's me. It's not anywhere, <laughs> anyone. Yeah, and to be honest, that's, that's a shame. And, and, uh, but if I look at the data in more detail, um, and I don't see a correlation between MRI positive and response to SECU. So we saw a lot of patients with negative MRI properly responding to SECU in a, in a really nice way. I'm, I'm not so confident that MRI give us a solution. Um, I'm, and I think maybe it's, it's better to do the power Doppler signal with the, with the ultrasound. Or maybe, Frank, maybe what MRI measures is not telling us the entirety of why Story. the patient is symptomatic. Yeah. No, no, I, I'm with you here. Symptomatic in that area of tissue. And I guess the challenge is whether power Doppler is going to pick that up either. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, what we really need is a really good molecular measure that can be picked up in imaging of neurosensitization. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So that's why my point, I, MRI is not a solution. To, I think it, it mimics a really objective measure, but I think it will not reflect what patients are bothered of. And, and that's the challenge. And, so and coming, yeah. No, I, all I say is, so because we could speak for hours on the subject, we're, we're going to have to unfortunately move on relatively soon. But I just wanted to get um, Laura's esteemed thoughts briefly before we leave this. But I have to comment. I have to comment on. Oh, you're allowed because, to. Go because, for it, Frank. because Philip wasn't able to ask me during EULA, I have to compensate it right now. Uh, the question is whether albumin binded new uh, structures might uh, home better in inflamed tissue. I think you, you pointed out that isocubeb had 80% re uh, enthesitis resolution, but be careful, it's a very early clinical trial, small numbers, to be honest. But if I think back on Cetralizumab Pegol, where we had excellent data on mice yeah. interlim-homing, and it doesn't result in any differences in the clinic, let's see what happened in the clinic. That's so, my final comment. And so the podcast preserves, pre presents yet another function that we hadn't anticipated, which is concluding ULAR sessions that were not properly <laughs> concluded by their moderators. My heavens, what an achievement. Laura, any final brief comments before we move on to our second paper? I think this is a really fascinating study. And I think what's great about this is that the investigators tried to do something new. They tried to push the boundary, develop a new study in a slightly different indication or a sub-indication and, and clearly thought a lot about how to identify those patients, how to screen, what kind of inclusion and exclusion criteria you want to use, as well as the outcome measures. And it's very easy to see this as a negative trial, but actually this teaches us so much more about how to do a better study in future, how we pick the outcome measures, how we include patients in studies. And I think this is really how the field moves on. No, absolutely. And I, and I, th I think for those of us in, in, in routine clinical practice, Philip's point about 
that patient with secondary pain sensitization, that patient with fibromyalgia, and you know we know that on average patients with psoriatic arthritis have a higher BMI, and put all that together, I think one of the, I, I really love this study for its ambition, the ambition that we can move to other metrics that will guide us in making what are often quite important clinical decisions. So look, um, enthesitis is one of the challenges that we face in clinical practice, but uh, my goodness, fatigue, pain, function, when we think of the human being who comes into our clinic room and you know, effectively what they're saying is, look, please give me my life back. And I think there's a, there's, that's a really key element of the, the analysis of the Keepsake One study that Philip, I think you're now gonna take us through. So maybe over to you, please. Uh, thanks, Ian. Uh, so rizinkizumab uh, is uh, an agent uh, that binds to the P19 component of IL-23, so very specific for IL-23 inhibition. Uh, and this is the second uh, specific IL-23 to be approved for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis. And here is one of uh, two key phase three registration trials. Uh, this was in a patient population that had not yet seen biologics, but had seen conventional synthetic DMARDs. We've already seen that the drug is effective uh, in the, uh, the data that was presented on clinical outcomes, such as ACR responses and uh, DAPSA responses and so on. This paper is focused on the uh, patient-reported outcome measures and quality of life measures, as well as work productivity. Uh, all of these things, as you point out, Ian, that are most important to patients and what they want to know about when getting involved with a new drug that they're switching to or starting, uh, as well as various payers around the world uh, who are quite interested in, you know, are we going to really um, uh, have a improvement uh, in pain, fatigue, work productivity, uh, as well as quality of life as measured by the standard ways we do so, uh, including pain BAS scales, facet fatigue score, SF36 physical component uh, summary, and, and, and as well as the WPAI uh, way of measuring uh, for work productivity. And not a surprise based on the clinical data that we've been seeing with this, with this drug, we saw uh, significant improvements uh, in these uh, patient-reported measures that are very important to patients. Um, and one of the things that I want to speak, uh, just mention, uh, is that in the WPAI, one of the things that they focus on is not just whether the person goes to work or not, but also this concept of presenteeism. Are they really there and contributing and doing the work as they normally would or are they sort of at half-mast? And uh, that was one of the items that really showed improvement here. So I think that we can uh, turn to our patients and say that this, uh, with this medication, which is, by the way, uh, very conveniently just given once every three months, uh, that they can have not only significant clinical improvement, but also improvement in the things that really matter to them, pain, fatigue, uh, as well as quality of life uh, and work productivity. Yeah, Philip, that, that, that's a powerful message, particularly that, that, that lateral comment. So, um, Laura, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to come in your direction first here because you know you, you've you've now made an enormous contribution to our literature and understanding the the need to get that totality of response. So, what 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 are your thoughts around this paper that that Philip has so beautifully described? 
Yeah, I think it's brilliant the way that research has moved on, certainly since we did kind of early biologic drug studies in terms of how we think about what outcome measures are included and what outcome measures matter to patients. And we've seen from a large volume of studies that there's a mismatch between what patients are aiming for and what doctors are aiming for. And often the, the underlying theme overlaps. You know, we want to control inflammation and they want to control pain. And clearly those two things are highly related. But I think thinking about really the big impact of the disease beyond just what we measure in clinic, but how patients feel day to day and how this impacts on their lives is really important. And it's great data to be able to share with patients. Yeah, it, it is, isn't it? Because, you know, telling them, well, your, your swollen antenna joint count will reduce. Yeah, sure, if they're also rheumatologists by coincidence, that's going to be helpful. But for most people, they want to know, am I going to go back to work? Can I go back and play golf? Can I go and go for a run? Can I walk with with my family, can I walk the dog? Can I hug my children? Yeah, it, it's and, and what I also love about this kind of data set is it, it reminds us of the essential humanity of being a doctor, which is really just so um, it, it's just lovely. And the fact that we can have these conversations now in people with, with psoriatic arthritis with numerous MOAs, in fact, although Rizinkizumab is a great example. And um, Frank, anything that you want to add to the discussion right now? I know this is something you think a lot about as well. Yeah, I, I think the important aspect is that these patient-centered uh, outcomes are specifically of importance in PSA, because while in RA, so we as rheumatologists were trained to check swollen joints and count it and then extrapolate the disease burden, to be honest. That's what we trained for. So I think, uh, and, and for good reason, to be honest. Um, uh, but as we have learned in the past, that the disease burden of PSA didn't correlate in the same way with the number of swollen joints. I think there was in the past a lot of data that SF36 was more influenced by enterocytes having or not having compared to having two or 10 swollen joints. And I think specifically in PSA, it is, it is of importance based on the heterogeneity to be, yeah, better reflect the impact of the disease for patients and, and not, of course, we, we break down as a, for primary endpoints often the inflammation of joints being included in, 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 C, in DAPSA, in, in, in ACR responses. But I think in addition to better understand the value, this is of, of critical importance, yeah. Just, be, just before we leave this paper, um, and Philip, forgive me, I'm gonna come back in your direction. You, you've, you've thought and taught us a great deal about fibromyalgia, about centralized or secondary pain sensitization. And, you know, people make a kind of implicit assumption that all of the symptoms are related to intercurrent inflammation and or a direct consequence of obvious tangible tissue damage. But, you know, Philip, is it possible that what we're actually seeing in our patients is, yes, inflammation-driven or maybe metabolically-driven changes in the way in which neurosensing and neuroplasticity works, but actually what is left is a residual pain syndrome that is very real, is molecularly real, and could be modified by some of our interventions, almost independent of their anti-inflammatory potential. Any, any thoughts just before we leave this? Because it's a fascinating idea, isn't it? That we're treating the whole person, not just the anti-inflammatory uh, impact in cytokine biology. Hugely important topic. Uh, and one of the things that we've been doing first with the uh, JAK inhibitors and now 
with IL-17 inhibitors and moving into the IL-23 inhibitors is doing what we call mediation analysis, where we try to identify just that point that you've raised, Ian, how much of the pain and recently some data on fatigue uh, is driven by inflammation, which we have historically thought is the main driver versus central sensitization uh, being upregulated and possibly being modulated by some of our therapies. So I, uh, these analyses have been demonstrating that only a proportion of the pain and fatigue is being driven by inflammation. And actually what our drugs may be doing is working in a, in a separate pathway through central mechanisms to reduce these and address these. And I think that's uh, an important message, uh, especially in those patients that have concomitant central sensitization. And, and I think it'll be hugely reassuring to our colleagues in practice to see this all the time. Yes. And then sometimes you hear them saying, what are those academics thinking about? Come into the real world and see what I'm dealing with. Well, actually, the truth is we're, we're trying to understand what is happening in the real world more and more in this disease. Yes. Look, um, I, I want to move to our third paper, and Laura, I think you've been getting far too easy a time, so I, it's, it's essential that we hear your thoughts around this, um, this analysis of the bimikizumab data set. So over to you, Laura, please. Okay, so um, this paper is looking at three-year results from the phase two trial of bimikizumab in active psoriatic arthritis, and obviously this has been published at a similar time as the early results from the phase three trial. So it's kind of adding in further information about bimikizumab, but particularly data on that open label extension. So we've already heard a little bit about bimikizumab. Um, it's a monoclonal antibody that inhibits both IL-17F and IL-17A. Uh, and there have been studies in vitro that have shown um, potential benefit of addressing both of these cytokines. Uh, and so there was a phase two study now published some time ago, which showed the improvement both in patients with psoriatic arthritis and in patients with AXPAR. And those patients that were included in the original phase two trial then went into an open label extension. And this study is looking up to three years of bimikizumab treated patients, uh, all of whom have had PSA. So obviously it is a phase two study, so it's relatively limited numbers. Um, there were just over 200 patients who were in that phase two study. And by three years, 78% of them rem remained in the study. So a pretty good consistency of response uh, and people continuing into the uh, study into year three. Um, there obviously were a high number of patients who'd had uh, at least one uh, adverse event potentially related to the drug, but they were predominantly things that we would expect to see. So um, upper respiratory tract infections, um, common cold, bronchitis, and obviously, because this is an IL-17 inhibitor, also some candidiasis. So there were around 9.7% of the patients who had had a fungal infection. Um, most of them were candida infections uh, and uh, a proportion with oral candidiasis. But all of those fungal infections were quite mild to moderate uh, and were localized. There was no disseminated infection. There were four patients in the study who had serious infections. Uh, but no other serious adverse events, um, such as tuberculosis, cardiac events, or death. So I think the safety data looks quite consistent with what we saw in the short-term studies, uh, and no uh, new issues raised uh, compared to the other IL-17 inhibitors. 
Um, in terms of efficacy, obviously there's always some bias in the patients who continue uh, into these studies and continue out beyond into this kind of three-year follow-up. Uh, but there's, this paper reported non-responder imputation, um, so looking uh, at all of the patients who started the study uh, and showed, again, quite good maintenance of response. So looking particularly at ACR50, uh, just over half the patients achieving that, uh, and PASI 100, so complete skin clearance, again in over half of the patients, uh, and just over half achieving minimal disease activity. Uh, and linking into the discussion that we've just had, um, maintained improvements in pain and physical function and in health-related quality of life, as you'd expect with that improvement in some of the physical symptoms as well. So I think this gives us kind of a first look at longer term outcomes with bimikizumab, admittedly in quite a small group because this is phase two, uh, but showing quite good sustained joint and efficacy responses, even looking with uh, non-responder imputation and no new safety signals other than that that we'd seen in the shorter term studies and would expect with an IL-17 inhibitor. Yeah, brilliant, Laura. Thank you. And it's interesting, and, I, and I, maybe if I can just emphasize for, for our colleagues listening into the podcast, uh, th this is the phase two long-term extension. As Laura mentioned, we actually have now started to see phase three data for this medicine. The B-optimal study, which is uh, DMARD IR patients, and B-complete, which is TNF, biologic IR patients, and both those studies were presented at ULAR, and they're, they're detailed discussions for another day, but in essence, they're pretty consistent with what we're seeing here. But the worry I have is that people conflate phase two, small number of patient follow-up with phase three. So thank you, Laura, for making that distinction so clear. Um, Frank, maybe come to you first. Uh, just uh, your, your, your feelings on the efficacy here, because the, yeah, the deal is that dual combination inhibition of IL-17A and IL-17F is going to add something in terms of efficacy values. What, what, what's, your, what's your feeling about where we've got to with bimikizumab at the moment? So I think we have to discriminate what we have learned from the, from the already mentioned phase three data, where it looks in the range from what we have already seen. And I think it, it was very of high interest to see long-term data, despite the fact that it's it's a small number and phase two trial. But I think at least based on what we learned from experimental settings by stimulating PBMCs, where we see that maybe a shift from IL-17A at the beginning after stimulation and, and uh, later on shifting a little bit to, to F could give some 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 impact. And then of course, as always, as we discussed earlier with the, with the homing in the inflamed tissue, at, at the end, it has to be translated into clinical benefit anyway. But I think there is a rationale that maybe long-term efficacy, um, because keeping in mind that it's an eclipse study in skin psoriasis where we compared IL-23 inhibition compared to IL-17 in skin psoriasis, again, after a long period of responses, there's a, light, a slight dip in the IL-17 inhibitors compared to the 23s. And maybe, hypothetically, based on what we have learned from basic research from the lab, maybe F inhibition could make some differences in, long, in the long run. But that has to be demonstrated in clinic. So that you're, you're nicely separating out the absolute magnitude of response against the durability of that response, and potentially also the penetration of that response into different tissues. 
Um, th thank you for that. But the flip side always is safety. And in every experiment so far, to my knowledge, that we've done with biologic combination, there's been a toxicity price to pay. Um, Philip, uh, we're seeing something happening, in the, particularly in the area of fungal infections here. I, I don't know if you want to just think out loud about the safety profile we've seen so far, accepting the limitations that it's a small study cohort at the moment. So I think that this data, as well as the data that we've seen in psoriasis studies, uh, where they use a higher dose, uh, we do see a dose-related effect on, on surface uh, candida infection. And I'm, I emphasize surface because we haven't seen the deep fungal infections that have been associated, for example, with TNF inhibitors. And, and most of the time, the patients tolerate this. That's moderate uh, uh, to mild uh, and very few dropouts uh, due to the candida infection. So I, whereas I think it's real and it's, it, if anything, it's telling us that maybe there's a little bit more potency here, and thus this Canada signal. I think that the um, most uh, most of the time the patients uh, tolerated okay. And one thing I would just love to add is that uh, to the overall efficacy uh, comment is we uh, one of the important criteria that is being used increasingly is Laura's minimal disease activity criteria that she generated many years ago uh, working with the GRAPA group. Uh, and uh, it's now become a standard metric. And what we were really taken by in the phase three data was, that was presented at ULAR was the fact that even in the, t uh, the patients that were biologic experience, 45% of them achieved an M MDA status at the primary endpoint, which I think is just uh, a terrific comment about uh, efficacy. So um, I, I, I think it's going to be uh, important once we get this drug and in, in, uh, being used more in practice to really see not only is durability there, but do, does it offer some advantage uh, in the long run for um, uh, overall efficacy? Yeah, that, 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 that's a great set of remarks. Can I just clarify for our listeners that um, Laura's MDA has been around for many, many years, but she, she made it up while she was still at high school. Can I just um, be clear on that? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't like any misunderstandings to arise. Um, Laura, I think that, that's got to be a segue to give you the closing words on this particular paper. Yeah, so I think this is really positive data. It's always nice to have new therapies. We still have a little bit of a question, I think, as to how that difference in biology will translate into a real difference in clinical practice. But I think as we get increasing data from the long-term phase two, uh, longer-term extensions of the phase three, and as Philip says, getting this into practice, uh, I think it will be a really valuable addition to our options for patients with PSA. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And uh, I think particularly it's, I, what, as you, you know, I, I've made no secret of my own desire to push the tissue domain directed therapeutic decision making in PSA. It's, it's, it's actually quite straightforward to do in routine clinical practice. That's why it's appealing. And for us to achieve that with lifelong diseases like psoriatic arthritis that may be onset in, in subjects in their 20s. We need as many MOAs available to us as we can get our hands on right now. And I think it's it's really exciting that this has come along when it has with really rather robust data coming through. I, I think it's very exciting indeed. Well, look, folks, we have used up our time with you. I know it's hard to believe that uh, 
30 minutes can go by in what feels like five, but when you are with, um, with Laura, with, with Frank and with Philip, this is an experience I have on a very regular basis. And as I anticipated, I have learned a great deal. I hope you have too. And I, I hope also you've enjoyed the, the conversation, listening to, to really world-class experts talking about data that make a difference to what we're going to do in clinical practice, either now already or assuming approvals come through in due course for some of the newer MOAs we've discussed uh, in the future. Um, if you have found our podcast interesting, please don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast from, which in my case is by asking my daughters to help me find a podcast. So uh, I don't really know what either YouTube or SoundCloud is. So, Cloud is. so you, you guys, I hope that means something to you. If it doesn't, go along to sitekindsigling.com because you'll find lots of instructions, information, and invaluable backup knowledge there. So thanks ever so much for joining us. It leaves me only to thank uh, Laura, to thank Frank and Philip. Thanks for your time, for your expertise, for your interaction for your knowledge and to thank you indeed for listening to our podcast we wish you every good fortune in looking after people with psoriatic arthritis they remain the most important part of our entire clinical lives and let us celebrate the progress that we now have to continue to improve their quality of life thanks ever so much bye for now